Lord Jesus Christ, where else would we go? For you are the Holy One of God. Your words to us are light and life. You nourish us. You cherish us. So Lord, I pray today that uh, as we open up the word to you, that we would encounter you. Speak to every man, woman, and child in this room today, Lord, that we might all count, encounter you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm so happy that so many of you were able to find our new location. I see several visitors in here as well. Again, I'm so glad that you're able to find our new location. This last month has been pretty stressful. We've been uh, given a, a sort of a, a smoke alert uh, and we're faked out. It ended up that Sunday. It was like the most beautiful Sunday, but uh, we decided to have living room church that day. Then we were rained out after that. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we were outside, and then we received noise complaints. We even received noise complaints on the Sundays that we weren't at the park, which is interesting to me. And so here we are. Uh, so I'm glad that you found us. I'm grateful for the Lord's provision of this space. And I, I have to admit, uh, I kind of like being here a bit more than outside. Um, you know, I love being in the park. There, there's just a certain uh, enchantment, I think, in, in worshiping the Lord under the sanctuary of his trees and his creation. But there's also joggers and barbecues and parties and stuff that are going on. And so I, I like being here. I also love being able to hear uh, the small chatter of our children. Uh, we, we love having kids in the service. I know for parents it can sometimes be stressful and feel like others are looking at you, but we are all blessed by the presence of children. Uh, we love being able to worship the Lord in the fullness of his household. So, um, Also, with that in mind, kids, uh, if, you, if you have your worship journals with you, uh, my drawing prompt for you today is to just draw your family. Um, draw your family. I, I think that could be a, a blessing for all of us uh, to see just pictures of your family. Great, so let's, um, let me find my notes here before I just keep on going on. <laughs> so this last weekend, I officiated two different weddings. Uh, I saw one of the couples just walk in, congratulations. Uh, so it was uh, Philip and Bethany uh, Hammersley, and then Chris and Jenny Dugan. Uh, so many congratulations to them. It was It was such a fun and exciting weekend for me, and also seeing several of you at those services was a blast. And each of those services were very different from one another. They were different in their style and their structure, um, and, and also just like cultures of families are different, and, uh, which is really, really fun. But there's one similarity that they both shared. Neither one of the couples chose to have read at their wedding Ephesians 5. I'm so glad you all are laughing. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because as I reflected on other wedding services that I had done, I realized none of them have chosen to have Ephesians 5 read at their weddings either. In spite of the fact that this is one of the longest, most comprehensive, mysterious, Christ-centered passages on what it means to be married that we have in the Bible. Now, of course, I'm being quite tongue-in-cheek right now. I understand perfectly well uh, why couples would choose to opt for other passages uh, in the Scriptures for their weddings, because a sad reality is that this passage, the one that we just read, has been so frequently weaponized in Christian circles. 
And if you want a particularly vile and evil example of that, uh, there's a podcast that many of you have been listening to, um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I mean, that is a, a clear example of ways in which these passages have been weaponized. But when understood correctly, Ephesians 5 is a profound portrait of sacrificial love and servant-heartedness uh, that we are supposed to see in, the, or in marriages. Now, we've been reading, we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've been following the, the Sunday lectionary schedule. The, a lectionary is basically a, uh, it's, a, it's a reading schedule, a preaching schedule that a lot of sacramental churches uh, follow. And so we're in Ephesians. And throughout his letter, Paul is describing the new, uh, the new culture that God is recreating uh, within Jesus Christ. And so today he turns to practical matters of how we ought to relate to one another, beginning with husbands and wives. Now, obviously, within a, a short morning Sunday sermon, there is not enough time to go through this. I mean, there are conferences on this. There, we could do a, you know, a very, very long sermon series just on this particular passage. And so this is just going to be like a little sip from this. And I'm sure that afterwards, as you're, as you're driving home and talking with your families, you'd be like, I wonder why Pastor Rick didn't talk about this or that or that or whatever. It's like, I know. There's so much in here that I wish we could spend time on. But then also, part of the reason why we're not able to devote all the time that this passage deserves is because of all the filth that exists in our culture and even in our church on this matter. There is a lot that we need to cut through in order to get to the beautiful truths that are here. And so on that note, I actually have three disclaimers, sort of three um, asterisks or footnotes or whatever you want to say, uh, before we actually dive into husbands and wives. So I want to talk about these three disclaimers. So the first one, probably a third of the adults in the room, I'm, I'm guessing here, are not yet married and may not be married, may not be called into marriage. And a sort of a, a, a confession as, as a pastor to the people of God is that far too often it's the case that in churches across our country that for those of you who are committed to a celibate lifestyle, you are often put to the sidelines when it comes to these kinds of conversations. Here in the American church, marriage is held up as like the ultimate human experience, like it's the pinnacle of human relationships. And yes, marriage is to be treasured and honored, but we also need to be reminded of the fact that the person, even in today's passage, the person who has pointed out that marriage, that, wedding, that couples are supposed to emulate is a celibate Jewish carpenter. And then Paul himself, who wrote these letters, he himself was celibate. And elsewhere, he says that he encourages all, he wishes that all people were to be celibate such as he is. So my charge to you who aren't married and um, my, my charge to you is to listen well, is to listen well to this passage. And I'm going to have another charge for you at the end of this sermon as well, but my hope is that you will still develop a healthy view of what marriage is. And if you feel that you are called into marriage, that you would never settle for a partner that is anything less than what the Bible describes to us. And if a potential partner does come along, I hope that you have the wisdom and the discernment to... Um, to look at that marriage or look at that relationship in terms of the Bible and what the Bible has to say. And if, the par if a partner does not come to you, 
then maybe you are called into Christian celibacy, as the Bible holds in tremendous regard. And if that's the case, may you yourself be an advocate and an ally for what the Bible describes as Christian marriage. So that's the first disclaimer. The second one, I don't know about you, but I find the whole conversation between egalitarianism and complementarianism to be so incredibly exhausting, boring at times, to be honest, and most unhelpful. Because on one end, and I'm gonna, I, I realize I'm, I'm building extremes here, but on one end, you have the egalitarian who points to, uh, even in this passage, mutual submission that we see in, verses, uh, in verse 21, but in overemphasizing our equal value and dignity to one another, we lose sight of the Christ-centered headship that is clearly described by Paul in this passage. But on the other hand, in complementarian, in extreme complementarian uh, situations, the differences between submission and headship is sometimes overemphasized. And it's easy then in those contexts to fall into the trap of modern cultural, or importing into the relationship modern cultural stereotypes over and against biblical maleness and femaleness. A holistic reading of the Bible holds both of these truths in tension, that we are all equal before God and that there is a distinction between the shape of our callings as men and women. So that's the second one. My third disclaimer has to do with the political situation that's now in our country. I'm just going down the list of everything that's controversial today, so let's, let's just dive into this as well, right? There, yeah, we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. There is no sermon is what Larry said. So across the political spectrum today, authority is wildly unpopular. Again, I'm going to be making some straw men here in order to make a point. I don't think anyone in the room actually says these things to me, but I want to prove a point with these extremes. I think a temptation on the far right is to idolize personal individual freedom above everything else. And so whenever we discuss submitting to authorities, the response that we quickly hear back, a response is full of personal rights and declarations of individual freedoms. Now, again, I'm not saying that Christians reject personal freedom. Far from it. We wouldn't be able to gather here and worship the Lord without privileged freedoms. But when personal freedom is valued more than love of neighbor, then we have a problem. Now, on the far left, it's a temptation to reduce every single human interaction to that of oppressor and victim. We hear this so much in our culture these days. And whenever authority is mentioned, it's automatically associated with oppression, coercion, and violence. There's no openness to charity in these conversations. Now, of course, yes, there are oppressive relationships in our culture that ought to be resisted. There's even oppression that happens within marriages that ought to be resisted. But when there is an automatic presumption of guilt of every person who is in authority, then we have a problem. So when we read passages like this that are about submission and about authority, that are about headship and respect and sacrifice, may we come into these passages without bringing any sort of shallow theology or politically shaped ideologies. 
may we approach the Bible on the Bible's terms. Because it is clear. When we read words like submission and headship, when we read words like respect and sacrifice, we are to look no further than Jesus Christ as our example. Amen? Amen. Thank you. All right. So let's talk about wives and husbands. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So what exactly does Paul mean when he says the word submit? As I mentioned earlier, in verse 21, we see that submission is just a part and parcel of what it means to be Christian. In fact, Christ himself submitted himself. He, he washed the apostles' feet, including Judas, who would eventually betray him. So what does Paul mean when it comes to the word submit? Well, Anglican theologian John Stott describes it this way, and I just love this definition. A grateful acceptance of the husband's care. Grateful acceptance of the husband's care. I asked Molly what she thought of that definition, and she says she liked it as well. (laughs) Now, each word in that is something to be expanded upon. So what we don't read in this is open rebellion. Wives are supposed to be grateful and excited for the husband's care, heartfelt gratitude. We also don't hear in that any hint of unthinking obedience. There's no blind um, subjection that's happening here. There's no um, absence of feedback in this. No, it is a voluntary acceptance. And then finally, the wife is not being asked to submit to authoritarian demands that make her uncomfortable, that make her um, shamed, or anything like that. No, she is being asked to submit to his care, to his care, grateful acceptance of his care. And the key is this, and, and again, Molly is the one who said this. She said, this only works when the husband's care is that self-sacrificial love of Christ, of Christ. Jesus Christ is the object here. So you see, the wife is never asked to submit to an ogre, but to a lover. And I love what Calvin says on this. I'm not always in alignment with Calvin, but I really like what he says here. The husband's authority should be a companionship rather than a kingship. I love that, companionship. So submission is a joyful partnership to her spouse. So last week, Molly and the girls went up to, uh, up to Greenbush, Minnesota. Her grandmother, who was 101 years old, passed away, and it was her funeral service. Grandma Marion was born in 1919. She married Jeffrey in 1940, and they were married for 69 years. Holy smokes. Like, it doesn't even sound like, can we do that? Okay. <laughs> Pray for us. (laughs) We'll see how well this sermon goes, I guess. (laughs) Now, for Jeffrey and Marion, they didn't necessarily fit like stereotypical gender norms as you would have expected in that in that sort of era. Jeff was uh, he, he had his opinions, but he was very very quiet. He was very very reserved in his demeanor. And Marion, she was the outgoing one. She was super tenacious. She was the risk taker. She was entrepreneurially minded. And it was Jeff's dream to start a business after the war. 
They had a home, uh, but what he wanted to do is he wanted to start a business so that he could provide for his family, so that he could create a platform for his bride and see her using her gifts, but also as a way to serve and bless the surrounding community. And so they sold their home in order to buy a drive-in. It's this like drive-in restaurant uh, gas station called the Y Drive-In. So if you're ever in Greenbush, Minnesota, you need to visit the Y. Oh, it closed? Oh, you should have just let me continue. The story sounds so much better. (laughs) Uh, So what they did is they, they sold the house in Grand Forks in order to purchase the Y, And as they were driving into town, there on day one, they came and they saw that the whole thing had been flooded. Like, oh my goodness, so disappointing. And so they they were forced with a decision there as to whether or not they sink more money into this risky situation now, if they try to rebuild this flooded um, building. The newspaper quoted Marion as saying, this is the most horrible day of my life. <laughs> you know, so like this was, this was a terrible, earth-shattering thing. But they, con- they thought about the dream and the vision that Jeffrey had. And Marion, not just in partnership with her spouse, but in voluntary submission to this dream, decided to rebuild, decided to rebuild the drive-in. And it eventually became sort of the focal point of that, of that rural town. Um, and what I love about this story is that we see both this partnership and this, this submission that is happening there. The fruit of that place was hospitality for the entire town. So again, words from John Stott, I think, summarize um, the duty of the wives well. Whenever the husband's headship mirrors the headship of Christ, then the wife's submission to the provision of his love is far detracting from her womanhood but rather it is positively enriching of it. Submission is grateful acceptance of the husband's care. Now, even if you just look at your bulletin and you look at the passage here in Ephesians 5, you can see that Paul has three times as much to say to husbands as he does to wives. Ephesians 22, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he repeats this two more times. He says, love your wife, love your wife, love your wife. It is the recurring chorus of this passage. And also three times that love is rooted in nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. As Christ loved the church, as Christ loved the church. And then nourish and cherish her as Christ does the church. So in the ancient world, Women were treated more as things, as objects, rather than persons. In Jewish law, a woman was to be deemed unclean and avoided once a month. In Greek and in Roman culture, companionship was non-existent. The man expected his wife to run the home and care for his legitimate children, but the man found his companionship elsewhere. So what about our culture? Do we think that we're any different than that? I mean, just go, drive down to the Mall of America and just do a lap around it, and you'll see these 20-foot-tall posters of women, objectified, airbrushed, hypersexualized. The movies that come out of Hollywood mirror back to us our atmosphere of adultery and lust that's in our society. 
So the biblical command for men to love their wives is just as revolutionary today as it was 2,000 years ago. And what is that love supposed to look like? As Christ loved the church. There's five verbs that we see here that describes Christ's love for the church. He loves the church. He gives himself up for her. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her that he might present her. He keeps building up and building up and building up the wife through his constant self-sacrifice. In a single word, we would call this sacrifice. The husband is called to sacrifice himself for his bride in order that she might become more completely herself. One of the things that I love about our church is that we are an intergenerational church. One of the things that I hate about the pandemic is that our older generation is usually advised to stay at home. And that's, I understand that. There are health risks that we need to consider. But it is our older members that when it comes to the topic of marriage, it is our older members who we need to look at and see as models before us. Because I so often see in, in your marriages the embodiment of what's being described in Ephesians 5. I hesitate to name names. I, I don't want to embarrass people. But there are people who are joining us on our live stream. I think, uh, excuse me. I think of the Fentons. I think of the Linquists. I think of the Bruces. Many, many others who are sacrificially loving one another in one of the most hellacious seasons of our nation's history. Amen. We see their sacrificial love. We see the ways in which they're picking one another up, sometimes literally. They love each other the same way that Christ loves the church. And I'm reminded again of, of what we read in our Liturgy of Marriage in the Book of Common Prayer, those gorgeous and beautiful wedding vows. In the name of God, I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death does us part. According to God's holy word, this is my solemn vow. And then the bride repeats that word for word to the groom. I see that in our older members. Thank you for that. Thank you. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. So now let us turn our attention back to celibates, to those who are not yet married, who are called into Christian faithful celibacy. So what does this passage have to say to you? And clearly, this is directed to husbands and wives. I don't want to shoehorn a new topic into this. However, when Paul says that Christ died for the church, that includes every single one of you. Christ died for all of you. So my question then is, what would it look like for you in your singleness to love the church in the same way that Christ does? Because Christ pursues you. Christ woos you. Christ wins you. In baptism, you are washed clean and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In his word, he says to you, I love you. So how can you love the church in the same way in which Christ does? 
And yes, I mean restoration, but I also mean the global universal church as well. And so many of you are already doing this. I'm not going to name and embarrass you. (laughs) But because of, of your faithfulness and your freedom and your sacrifice for the church, restoration would not be the church who she is today. You are our artists, you're our hospitality team, you're our children's ministry teachers, you're our altar team, you're our communion servers, you're our prayer team leaders. You are working alongside Christ to sanctify and prepare and present the church to be holy and acceptable on that last great final day. So in your submission and sacrifice, I see Jesus Christ in you. So thank you also. So brothers and sisters, together we are the household of God. Wives, submit to and respect your husbands. Husbands, nourish and cherish your wives. And those who aren't married, serve and sacrifice yourself for the church. And so then may we all together submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.